Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. We quickly formed new habits during the pandemic. Why can't we do that with the emergency around climate change? People don't tend to want to focus on something until it's in a crisis state. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. Why seismic lifestyle shifts could be possible right now. Plus, if a business wants to effectively address systemic racism, it needs to be part of its overall strategy. Because honestly, if all you're doing is plastering Black Lives Matter on your organization or doing a video one time, but you're not looking at your institutional policies, then what you're doing is largely performative. And later on in the show, hikers were asked to stay off the Appalachian Trail during the pandemic, but some people did not listen. I know for me personally, I put so many other things in life on hold to come and do the trail. So it was not going to stop. That's what it came down to. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Ten public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. Across the U.S. and in New England, some businesses are trying to take on racism within their own organizations. After the recent protests against police brutality and inequality, companies are examining their workplaces and how they can support Black employees and communities. WBUR's Zanindor and Wameka has the story from Boston. Black Lives Matter. It's a call that's rung out in Boston streets and some boardrooms. In recent weeks, businesses have filled their social media feeds with black boxes and statements in support of the movement. They're taking up the call of protesters who are demanding an end to systemic racism and inequality. We immediately held listening sessions with our executives in the company. Desiree Rouse Morrison is a senior vice president and general counsel at Boston Scientific. The police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis hit close to home because the medical device company has thousands of employees near the city. For Rouse Morrison, the conversations that have followed that incident aren't new. She's the only black executive at the company, something she's gotten used to throughout her career. She says many white people are starting to see things differently. You may not be racist. But if you are not an anti-racist, you are not advancing us to where we need to be. Being anti-racist is very different than just not being racist. And I think that is self-reflection that many of them are coming to, frankly, that they have to actively be involved in fighting racism and fighting for social justice. To that end, Boston Scientific says it will donate two and a half million dollars to groups that tackle disparities in everything from education to health care. Rouse Morrison says the company is also accelerating efforts to diversify its leadership ranks. To ensure that we're getting, you know, different views, different thoughts. And, you know, in our view as a company, leading to higher performance and better innovation. 
Companies are thinking about diversity and inclusion in other ways, too. Wambi Rose is the CEO of Love Pop, which makes pop-up greeting cards. Rose says he's now looking to work with Black artists to diversify the Boston startup's products. In the past, we've thought, hey, we're going to try to avoid depicting human forms as much as possible so that we don't have to have that issue of how are we representing, you know, different people. But now one of the things that's become clear to us is that's actually not equality. Like we actually need everyone to be able to see themselves in our product line. Other companies are thinking about their supply chains. Justin Pronovos is the owner of Curio Coffee in Cambridge. We are looking into, can we find a coffee roaster that's black owned that we can buy beans from? And then we do a little bit of natural wine sales as well. So we are looking into, you know, are there black winemakers that uh, we could support and we could sell their product? Pranavo says he's already found some good options. Many Black-owned businesses have seen a boost in sales since the protests began. Weekend of Juneteenth, our takeout numbers were through the roof. It's been, it was, honestly, it was, it was, it was overwhelming at, at one point. Gio Lambert owns M&M Barbecue. He says he hopes the current interest in Black businesses doesn't fade. I don't want it to be out of guilt that you're doing it. You know, I want you to understand that this is for a, you know, a bigger cause. That's something Matt Malloy is thinking about. He's the CEO of Dorchester Brewing Company, which is where M&M Barbecue is located. Malloy says his team is now brainstorming ways to diversify the staff and clientele of the brewery. We're going to probably have a coalition of five or seven people that join together to figure out what to do over the next six to 12 months because it, it, it can't stop. We have to keep on doing this. Like We've got to keep the momentum. And long-term planning is critical. Tina Opie, who teaches management at Babson College, says companies that want to address systemic racism need to make it part of their overall strategy. Because honestly, if all you're doing is plastering Black Lives Matter on your organization or singing a song or doing a video one time, but you're not looking at your institutional policies, then what you're doing is largely performative. Opie is also a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant. She says companies need to examine their practices for hiring, recruitment, promotions, and raises, among other things. You have to actually resource this. You have to have metrics. You need to have content experts. You need to have project plans and accountability plans before you just haul off and announce, oh, we're going to do a diversity group and a diversity plan, and that's going to be great. Opie and others will be watching to see whether businesses actually follow through with the efforts they've now begun. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. Black-owned bookstores are among the businesses seeing an uptick in white clientele. This new crop of customers is seeking them out for books to help navigate America's racial reckoning and their own. WGBH Radio's Soraya Wintersmith reports on how this has fueled a bittersweet business bump for one Black-owned bookshop in Boston. At Frugal Bookstore in Roxbury's Nubian Square, co-owner Leonard Egerton is up to his waist in boxes. As he rearranges the stack to make space for customers in the kids' quarter, he does a quick bit of quality control, slicing open each package and inspecting its contents. The books are not bent. The boxes are just one of the daily tasks Egerton and his family are managing at their small community bookstore. There's the phone, the in-store customers, the pending online orders, and the additional boxes needed to fulfill them. 
And that doesn't even include the Egerton's personal struggles. I'm working 24-7, and it's, it's been hectic. You know, we have to deal with um, one of our family members died from the coronavirus. Somebody that's really, really close to us. And it, it's, it's overbearing for us at times, but we have to, we have to keep pushing on. Thank you for calling Frugal Bookstore. How may I help you? Egerton says the rush began about a month ago when protests against racism and police brutality broke out nationwide. The demonstrations came with a wave of new customers seeking books about race and systemic racism and a movement to conscientiously support black bookstores. But there was a problem. We started getting emails that people wanted to cancel orders, um, saying that we were too slow, and we tried to explain the best that we could that, you know, this is new for us. Across the nation, black bookstore owners like Egerton are ramping up order volumes to meet demand while still trying to function during a pandemic. Book publishers, who were also taken by surprise, are part of the holdup. Sourcebooks, which publishes Leila Saad's book, Me and White Supremacy, says they're taking the rare step of issuing multiple small print runs as a way to get books out more quickly. The New Press says they had 40,000 copies of Michelle Alexander's 10-year-old book, The New Jim Crow. That's normally a more than ample reserve that disappeared virtually overnight. It's the same thing like what happened with, you know, meat in grocery stores and toilet paper. Aaliyah Capello is one of the people still waiting for an order she placed at the beginning of June. She lives in Gloucester, Massachusetts, and purchased How to Be Anti-Racist and Hood Feminism as a way to start supporting the state's black community. But I do recognize, you know, this is a pandemic. There's a lot of challenges that come with um, supporting um, individuals that are really kind of running their operation. And so I'm just having the best patience that I can. When they come, I'll, I'll be ready for them. Back at Frugal Bookstore, the slogan is changing minds one book at a time. Leonard Egerton says it is befitting for the national phenomenon, where many are trying to buy books with the intention of becoming better. But it, it, you can't possibly change your mind from the reading of, of one book or two or three books. That process, he says, takes time, empathy, and building relationships. That was WGBH Radio's Soraya Wintersmith. Environmental reporting and climate change are a focus of ours on Next, and for our collaborative partner stations in New England. This month, New Hampshire Public Radio has launched a new climate change reporting project called By Degrees. Annie Ropeek is the lead reporter on the project, and she joins me to talk about it. Annie, you've been developing this project for about a year, but given the current state of things with the pandemic and recent protests against racism— Has your mission or focus for this project adjusted? Absolutely. I mean, we've had to really pivot it in several ways just in the past few months and then in the past few weeks. I think it's going to change the project for the better. I think it's injected a lot of new angles into it that we probably should have been prioritizing more from the beginning. So we're uh, hoping now really to look at how climate change and our response to it are playing out in the middle of all these other crises, an economic crash, all these protests, Uh, and the ongoing pandemic, um, how those things affect climate change and how they might affect how we respond to climate change going forward. You've been covering energy and the environment in New England 
for a number of years. Is there anything that you've learned through this project recently that surprised you? Yeah, it's so fun to learn new things on your beat. And, you know, I, yeah. I learn something new in this job every day. But um, one of the stories that we're working on in the next few weeks is about um, indoor air pollution. So I knew a lot about outdoor air pollution. And we think about that as really sort of like an outdoor air quality issue. But it turns out that especially in New England with our older housing stock, that the way your house was built and sort of how it retains heat and like how it's ventilated, those can all affect the quality of the air you're breathing too, and that ties to climate change-related pollution, to heat and things like that, and it can affect um, people's health, especially uh, marginalized communities, people who might live in older housing or in areas with worse air quality who tend to be people of color and tend to be low-income people. And so that was new to me, the whole idea of indoor air quality. So I'm really looking forward to that story, which I will say our intern has done a great job working on. Nice. Yeah, so interesting. It shows the intersection between so many things. Um, it, it says on your website that part of the goal of this project is to engage your listeners and ask them what climate change questions they have. What have you heard so far? People have a lot of questions about how climate change relates to everything else that's going on. They want to know about its connections to racial justice. They want to know about its connections to the economic recovery from the coronavirus to public health. And they want information about changes they're seeing in their own backyards, not just the stuff we hear about a lot like sea level rise and skiing, but we've gotten questions about gardening and invasive species and things like that. And they want to know all, more than anything what they can do, which is such a hard question to answer and one that we're really looking forward to tackling. So we're going to turn now to listen to actually one of the first stories in By Degrees, this reporting project. And it's a story that you reported. And you ask a really interesting question, you know, given that in the past few months, we've seen seismic shifts in people's lifestyles and attitudes with both COVID-19 and the Black Lives Matter movement. Why haven't people reacted with the same urgency to the climate crisis? And could that be about to change? So where do we begin? So we begin with Sherry Schmidt. She's a teacher in Bedford, New Hampshire, and she describes herself as eco-conscious. She says she and her husband have always tried to recycle and compost. Uh, but when they had to start staying home due to COVID-19, they started to find themselves doing a lot more. We're being very careful about food waste uh, because obviously it's not like you can just drop everything and run to the grocery store anytime you want to. Um, thinking about what do you use for personal household supplies like paper towels? Maybe it's better if we're not going through so much of that because we can use things that we already have around the house. Driving less, shopping less, finding new ways to reduce and reuse. The changes Schmidt made in response to the coronavirus are some of the things scientists say can help reduce the carbon emissions that drive climate change. Globally, the coronavirus-related shutdowns led to a 17 percent drop in emissions by mid-spring, though that trend has reversed as life has begun to resume. Still, if lots of people could quickly form new habits like this during the pandemic, why didn't they do it sooner, knowing the need to act on climate change? Schmidt has an idea. Well, I think it's, it's because... <laughs> Unfortunately, that's part of the human condition. You know, people don't tend to want to focus on something until it's, a, it's a, in a crisis state. Social scientists say she's right. Suzanne Moser with Antioch University in Keene says the way we talk about climate change makes it feel distant compared to something like the pandemic. 
I have COVID going on right now. I have no job. I have kids to deal with. I mean, those are the kinds of things that tend to get our attention much more easily. The threat of COVID-19 is immediate and easy to visualize. That ubiquitous image of the spiky red ball and our family and friends masked or in hospital beds. There are clear and impactful ways to show we care and we're doing something about it, like wearing masks in public. The urgency of it got policymakers to act relatively quickly and decisively. Climate change, on the other hand, has dawned on us slowly through predictions, scenarios, things that can sound hypothetical. Scientists have had to work for decades to get their consensus to sink in that human activity is causing the problem. Ah, when you then start a policy, you have to acknowledge that we're actually at at fault. <laughs> That's so not something you want to be caught with as a politician. Add a dose of economic fear and a powerful competing interest in the fossil fuel industry, and Moser says what might have been a straightforward call to action became political. And that's actually what she says is happening now in the pandemic. The big changes didn't last. States reopened quickly in fear for their economies, only to see COVID-19 cases spike. This might seem like a bad sign for our ability to sustain climate action over the long term. But Moser is still hopeful. She says massive collective changes needed to respond to climate change won't shut down the economy like the pandemic. Instead, they'll create whole new industries and jobs and make people healthier and safer. Emily Diamond studies climate communication at the University of Rhode Island. She's also been watching the response to COVID-19. If fighting climate change requires massive structural change, we've just demonstrated that we can do it. We've also demonstrated that when there's a threat that's urgent enough, we can really open our coffers um, in a way that, that we haven't seen in addressing most other issues besides potentially going to war in the past. Diamond studies how people's identities shape their response to climate change. She says people are galvanized by threats to their sense of self, like their livelihood or a place they love. And she thinks she's seeing that dynamic at work in an important way this summer, in the unprecedented number of white people joining people of color in protests over police violence. Diamond, who is white, thinks these protesters have probably always thought of themselves as supporters of racial equality, just as people might identify as eco-conscious. Right now, she says people are being confronted with stories that make them feel they aren't who they thought they were and they haven't done enough. That act of being called out, I think, is something um, that's really powerfully motivating. Diamond says this can be applied to climate change, that people who felt they cared for a long time should start to do more. She thinks this moment is a call not just to individual action, but to structural change, to confront systemic racism and climate change at the same time. It's not enough to just carry your reusable bags to the grocery store or maybe sometimes bike to work instead of driving to work. We have to translate this into pressure to create political will and policy changes. Scientists say climate change and COVID-19 are both disproportionately hurting people of color and low-income communities. Diamond says she hopes activists, scientists, and policymakers will see the links between these issues and start addressing climate change as a matter of justice. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Annie Ropeek. That story comes from New Hampshire Public Radio's new climate change reporting initiative called By Degrees. You can learn more about the project at our website, nextnewengland.org.
Last week, we heard from a listener in rural Maine who generally does not wear a mask. She's from a county with few cases of COVID-19. So we asked you how you felt about mask wearing, and it struck a nerve. We got the most responses we've ever gotten to one of our listener questions. One person we heard from was Bella Chaudhry of Glastonbury, Connecticut. If this is a very small gesture, very small thing to do, why shouldn't we do it and help eliminate this disease? And it has been proven that wearing a mask keeps one safe. So it's very simple, very easy. Wear a mask. Bye. We also heard from listener Melissa Honeybell in Midcoast, Maine, who says she supports wearing masks, but not everyone in her community does. I feel like if I wear a mask, I have witnessed that some people, my neighbors, even my sister, is upset with me and doesn't want me to wear a mask around her. It bothers me a lot that people are using the excuse that it's taking away their freedoms. I've had friends tell me, yeah, it's a personal choice, and I've said to them, Not when you're in public, it's not. When you're in public, you're part of a community and you give up some of your personal freedoms when you live among other people. And that's just the way it is. Thanks to all our listeners who called in or wrote an email. Keep it coming. This week, we want your thoughts on climate action. Have you noticed that the pandemic or racial justice protests have motivated you to take action on the environment? In what way? Or are you worried the climate crisis has dropped off people's radars? Leave a comment at 860-275-7595. Again, 860-275-7595. Or you can email us at next at ctpublic.org. And thank you. After the break, how two cities hard hit by coronavirus turned things around. Plus, a fish plant worker dies of COVID and his son goes to work in the same job to support the family. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. As of this taping, New England has largely avoided the recent surge in coronavirus cases that we're seeing in other parts of the country. Our next story looks at two cities that earlier in the pandemic had the highest rate of positive coronavirus tests in their respective states, Rhode Island and Massachusetts. These cities are now reporting few, if any, daily cases, and their dramatic improvement may provide lessons for emerging hotspots. WBUR's Martha Biebinger reports. Chelsea City Manager Tom Ambrosino scans a chart with daily coronavirus case updates for this small, densely populated community. The chart peaks on April 13th, when 160 residents received positive test results. In the past week, there have been zero to four new cases a day. Ambrosino likes what he sees. The trend we're looking for is, is there another spike 
or are we continuing a positive trend in the right direction? And at this point, I would say we're seeing that positive trend continuing. Chelsea's positive case rate is still about four times higher than the state average. None of the factors that put Chelsea residents at high risk for the coronavirus have changed. People living in crowded conditions, people going to work in crowded conditions, people working in crowded conditions, and air pollution, heavy truck traffic. What has changed, says Ambrosino, is the behavior of residents. They've stayed home, in quarantine when needed, adjusted to physical distancing rules, and very few people are out today without a mask. I saw one or two as we were walking, but it was pretty rare. I'd say the compliance is in the 90-plus percent. <laughs> yeah, say hi to Lourdes. Lourdes Alvarez runs Chelsea's food distribution program, created during the pandemic to help residents cope with sickness, job cuts, and other strains. So here we have a box with 10 prepared meals, five breakfasts, and uh, five lunches. And also we have fresh products, so you see that we are preparing bananas and milk. Alvarez expects to distribute 600 boxes today. The city delivers meals to residents who are sick or are staying home because they may be infected. A Mass General Clinic in Chelsea distributed almost 9,000 so-called quarantine kits that included masks, soap, hand sanitizer, and info. You know, pamphlets about hand hygiene, six feet in between, masks, you know, all of the public health education that had been going Dr. on. Dr. Dean Xeris is the medical director at the MGH Chelsea Clinic. He also treated patients at a hotel Chelsea rented for residents with COVID who needed a place to isolate while sick. Xeris expected that hotel to fill within a week, but it never did. We started to learn that, you know, people were afraid. People didn't want to leave their homes. People didn't want to register and report that they were sick or have to give their names. Xeris worries but can't prove that fear helps explain why so many COVID patients from Chelsea, East Boston, and Revere did not arrive at Mass General in March and April until they needed intensive care. Xera says Chelsea and other communities with large immigrant populations are trying to ease those fears. We don't care about immigration status. We don't care about insurance status. There's no reporting. There's no um, fear. Atención, that this be, residentes be de Central Falls. Este es el alcalde Diosa. To reach and reassure residents of another largely Latino immigrant community, police in Central Falls, Rhode Island, have been cruising residential streets, playing public health messages. They're recorded by Mayor James Diosa. You have to have a grassroots operation where you outreach to every single person through every single means. Diosa speaks outside a tent testing site. Anyone can walk in or make an appointment via a hotline that only asks for two pieces of information, a first name and a phone number. Dr. Michael Fine, the chief health strategist for Central Falls, says among those who provided additional information, the vast majority are living in poverty and only 28 percent are citizens. And that suggests to me that we broke through to many people who otherwise wouldn't get access to any kind of care and would have stayed sick in their homes alone. Central Falls created the hotline with medical staff who could assess symptoms after EMTs responded to at least four calls where residents with COVID had died at home. The hotline also connects patients who need to isolate with a support network for food and supplies. The city has offered cash to some undocumented workers who did not qualify for federal assistance. 
The positive case rate in Central Falls has dropped from 35 percent, the highest in Rhode Island, to about 6 percent. In Central Falls and in Chelsea, there are signs residents are letting down their guard a bit. Let's see, when did it start? Michael DeJesus is a part-time student and warehouse worker. He says the early spring was scary, but things started to relax in Chelsea around Mother's Day in late May. I'm, I'm guilty of it. Like, we went to my grandmother's house and had a little thing, and we didn't social distance, we didn't wear masks. It was kind of relieving to kind of just be more open and not, not, not care about, like, uh, safety and stuff. With its high infection rate, city manager Ambrosino wonders how close Chelsea might be to herd immunity, if herd immunity holds for COVID-19. It's an interesting theory that keeps cropping up in my mind, and it would be the best possible news because it would mean that we would, we might be spared from the harshest impacts of a second wave. Ambrosino says Chelsea spent $4.3 million on efforts to control the coronavirus through June and has received $2.5 million from the federal government. Now he opens every daily case report, fingers crossed, hoping that the mantras about good hygiene, masks, and physical distancing stay with people as the state reopens. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Martha Biebinger. We turn now to the story of one of the thousands of people who have died of coronavirus in New England. Francisco died two months ago after working at a fish plant in New Bedford, Massachusetts, during the pandemic, a place where dozens have contracted the virus. Now his teenage son, Juan, has taken a job as a fish plant worker himself to help support the family. Juan shares his story with Nadine Sabai for the Publix Radio, and we've agreed not to share the family's last name to protect their privacy. 17-year-old Juan got a call from his sister on a sunny day in early spring after work. Their dad, Francisco, was being rushed to the hospital. She got a call from his husband, telling her that an ambulance was picking my dad on, and we ever know who called. And he never told us he was sick because he doesn't want us to be like worried about him. So I called them, I tried to talk with them, and I asked for my dad. And they said, yes, he's here, and he's really sick. So he, I talked to him, please ask God to give you an opportunity, and, and please be strong. I told him, okay, but I don't know if I'm going to make this. He told me, okay. That's fine. You will be okay. You will come home home soon. 56-year-old Francisco was a new Bedford fish plant worker. He came to the U.S. from Guatemala with Juan five years ago. He was undocumented, which means the one-month journey to get here was risky. They moved through Mexico by foot and bus, Francisco carrying Juan as his son nearly died from a lack of food and water. We, The majority of my brothers, we are here. Only once in Guatemala with my mom. My dad was here with us. My mom was with my other brother. But we all we are here for one reason, because we're looking for a better dream, for a better life, and also to help my mom with everything she needs. Yeah. And we, my dad spent a lot of money on me. And when we got here, he said, this is the dream that like, you deserve from me. That's the only thing that I can do for you. He always looking for work. Yeah, he always, 
walking his bike. There's his bike is still there. And he always happy when he finds a new work. Yep, I got a new work. I got a new work today. I work. I got a few hours. He always happy, smile. Yeah. Francisco had done construction work back in Guatemala, and he had pre-existing respiratory issues. So when Juan found out that his dad was in the hospital with COVID-19, he was scared. Like every time when I call, I ask from the hospital to see my dad. I want to talk to him because they tell me that he was really sick and he's gonna not able to talk in a few days. But they didn't understand me. He said they tell me that you cannot see him. We not we cannot let you guys to come here because it's it's like dangerous to come here because of the virus. Uh, every day I get home, I call my dad, I talk to him. He said I can I cannot feel my body anymore. And what, what's going on? I cannot talk anymore. My the doctor told me that his lung was worse and his blood wasn't working anymore. And then it was a day, like Tuesday, when they called me and told me, you die, your dad is gonna pass away this night. We're gonna take him off on the machine and say, oh no. And I tell them, please don't take him off. I want to see him at least one time. So we just got away. Some said we got away. They didn't let us see him anymore. When I, I was calling my mom at eight, when they called me, and they told me that my dad has to pass away already. And I just stayed like, Start shaking, start can't like talk anymore because I wasn't believing. We never experienced a person who's gonna die. He's the first one in the family who's gone. We didn't know what to do. With, like, we all like stay quiet. What's gonna do? We start thinking. And who who gonna help us? And my sister friends know what to do. And I just stay in my room. But he couldn't just stay there. His dad was the family's main source of income, and Juan's mom back in Guatemala was dependent on them for money. So Juan got a job at a fish plant where he learned, like his dad, how to carve perfect fillets of fish that would end up on dinner plates across the country. The first thing I do in the morning was to put all the clothes that we need, everything, wear a mask, a helmet, everything, and start cleaning fishes or pass the fish to the person who's going to clean. Or I'm going to be on the table with the, the ladies, Washing the fish and packing the fish, everything. So it goes in different places. Juan was going to drop out of vocational school, but his sister convinced him to continue to study and train to become a welder. While school is out, Juan will still work at the fish plant, the same 5 a.m. to 4 p.m. shift that his dad always did. Juan remembers making fun of his dad when he would come home smelling of seafood and telling him to wash his clothes. But now he comes home smelling the same way. He's also tired, and he's learned the meaning of the phrase living paycheck to paycheck. It's not, we're not living like free. I mean, we're living free, but we got to work to pay where we live. It's like you're paying for your life to live here. You got to pay a lot of things. Now I understand my dad went when he used to say to me that I got to understand why he cannot buy this thing for me. When you grow up or when you get older, you're not gonna end up in a fish house. No. Where are you? What do you want to be? Making great things as a welder. 
building buildings, like bold buildings or bridges, everything. The welders, they like constructs and put things together. That's why they call welders, metal fabrication, we call it. That's our name. You have to be thankful for a lot of things. I've been thankful for a lot of things for them because they did a lot on me. They give a lot. They spend a lot on me to be alive right now and to be where I am now. Thank you for my dad to give me the great opportunity to live here and now. Juan says his dad, Francisco, was always a jokester at the dinner table. One day when they lived in Guatemala, Francisco found Juan sleeping next to instead of feeding pigs on a farm that they were on. So from then on, Francisco would call Juan the pig during dinner. Juan misses that. When we come here, he told me one thing. Never, never cry for someone when he's going to pass away. Because you're not going to let him to be in peace. So sometimes I try to not cry for him. Because we know that we all going to die one day. And but sometimes I can't, like I can't anymore because I gotta cry. When he passed, I realized everything. I opened my eyes and I understand everything what he says. But it was too late for me to understand. Francisco's death certificate says he was cremated. Juan says it was something that his dad never wanted. He wanted to be buried in Guatemala. But the death came at a bad time in the midst of a pandemic. Juan hopes that his dad could forgive him. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nadine Sabai. Coming up, the hikers who refused to quit the Appalachian Trail during the pandemic. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. We're back and ready to head to the Appalachian Trail, where every year several thousand adventurous souls set out to hike more than 2,000 miles from Maine to Georgia or the other way around. This year, though, because of the coronavirus, thru-hikers have been advised to put their dreams on hold. Some have refused. And as Maine Public Radio's Susan Sharon reports, that's created tension between those who want to push personal boundaries and those who say there should be limits to protect the public. 
Back in March, the Appalachian Trail Conservancy, which manages and protects the trail from Georgia to Maine, made an unusual decision. We asked people that hadn't started their their hike to postpone it, and we asked people who were on the trail to please leave. Sandy Mara is president and CEO of the Conservancy, who says even before COVID-19, there were regular outbreaks of other viruses in crowded bunkhouses and shelters. Hikers often don't have access to soap and water for days at a time, so hygiene can be a challenge. There were concerns hikers would infect each other or spread the virus in rural towns where they stopped to pick up food and supplies. Overnight facilities and privies along the trail were closed. But then came a tremendous flood of day hikers in more populated areas trying to escape the confines of their homes. We started getting reports of overflow parking lots, people parking on highways, parking on private land, tons of people driving into these small communities. A lot continue to disregard even the basic guidance of of having masks. At that point, everyone was asked to get off the trail because of the inability to socially distance on the crowded, narrow footpath. Mara says managing the surge of day hikers continues to be a struggle in certain states. But that's not the case in the tiny town of Caratunk, Maine, where Greg Caruso has noticed a big drop in the number of people coming through. Known as the ferryman, Caruso's job is to safely transport hikers across the swift-moving Kennebec River which can rise several feet in a matter of minutes when water from upstream dams is released. Caruso's canoe is the only sanctioned means to cross the river. There's even a white blaze on the inside that officially marks the Appalachian Trail. Last year, I took 280 people across the river between Memorial Weekend and July 1st. This year, I've taken 50, but I don't know what to expect. Maybe there's people starting now. In a typical year, only one in four hikers who plans to complete the trail actually meets the goal, about 1,200 people. Mara estimates that this year, less than half that number will finish. Zach Chen of Poughkeepsie, New York, hopes to be one of them. In my head, it's like, as long as I can social distance and not have too much interaction with the public, with the locals, and it should be okay. At a rest stop near Baxter State Park, Chen, who goes by the trail name Eager Beaver, said he first tried to complete the Appalachian Trail in 2018. Then he fractured his foot and had to give up. In March of this year, Chen got back on the trail again in Georgia, a few days before state-imposed shutdowns and quarantines took effect. By the time he arrived in North Carolina, he says hostels were closing and hikers were being told to go home. That's where he says he had an unpleasant encounter with a postal worker. Pretty much yelled at me for hiking and really putting people's lives in jeopardy. Chen says he rented a car and headed home that very same day. He waited until July before trying again. This time he's going in reverse from Maine to Georgia. But for those who stayed the course, there was harsh criticism from the online trail community. We did hear that um, right at the peak when everything was getting worse. People were throwing around like grandma killers and like stuff yeah, like that. Really we were like, bad. Well, maybe don't go that far. Kristen Glennie and Mary Shatkowski, both from Maine, finished their hike on July 4th. Along the way, Shatkowski says they were confident they could follow CDC guidelines. When we went to town, we would feel like we were being safer than the residents there. We were masking up, we were sanitizing and seeing, like, do we feel like we can follow these directions well enough? And, like, we did feel like we could. Really, until we got several weeks in, 
it wasn't that big of a thing here yet. On July 4th, as they prepared for their final 15 miles of the trail, North Carolina natives Drew Miller and Dustin Cornegie say they're feeling good but tired. The two quit their jobs before beginning their months-long odyssey on February 29th. Cornegie says they briefly discussed giving up. Uh, yeah, we debated it. I mean, I know for me personally, I put so many other things in life on hold to come and do the trail. And this was my one chance to do it, so it was not going to stop. I mean, it was it, that's what it came down to. So. But northbound hikers who were a few days ahead of Miller and Cornegie faced one other obstacle. The Appalachian Trail officially ends at the summit of Mount Katahdin in Maine's Baxter State Park. And the park didn't completely open until July 1st. So several people essentially sneaked in to do the climb. And that created more hard feelings when they posted online pictures of themselves doing it. Paul Renaud runs a hostel for hikers in the nearby town of Millinocket. That puts a bad mark on the trail community. And that's just saying, no, you can do whatever you want. Don't listen to anybody. Renaud's business is off this year because of the coronavirus. But he says there's one silver lining. The more remote stretches of the trail have been given a bit of a break. And through hikers who are just finishing now say that's made their experience even more worthwhile. I don't know. To me, we're living our best lives right now. It's been nice to have most everything to ourselves. Dustin Cornegie says it will be strange leaving the Appalachian Trail to return to a world in the midst of a pandemic. And plus, he says, his wife is going to want him to find a job. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Susan Sharon. We leave you with this story from Judith Kogan, a professional harpist and teacher in Massachusetts. In many ways, the shift to teaching harp remotely during the pandemic has been challenging, but she's found a way forward. In the isolation of the pandemic, many people are picking up musical instruments. There's time for it. Music consoles and delights. It's a welcome break from screens, and for the determined, progress is palpable. But for those who'd been studying or teaching an instrument the old-fashioned way, the pandemic poses unique challenges. Live and in person would seem essential. It's all about nuance of sound achieved through nuance of motion. A 360-degree view and unmediated sound would seem essential. I'm a classically trained harpist and harp teacher. With the lockdown, I thought I'd suspend lessons until we were allowed to enter each other's homes. But my students, digital natives carrying on with the rest of their lives online, saw no reason harp lessons shouldn't move there as well. Trust your students. It's not better than before. There are weird electronic distortions, like the screen that turns taut harp strings into twirling strings of twisty licorice. The string just went really weird. And compression distorts the volume of sound. that top note. Did you play it? Yeah. Imagine a soccer or tennis clinic where the coach has a single flat perspective. You really need every angle. Um, 
Can you move the camera to your right elbow? But it turns out there are benefits to teaching harp online. With most of the room cut out, there are fewer distractions. When three dimensions collapse into two, there's a weird intimacy. You can get up close, like ballroom dance partners. The students are more alert than ever. I see them when they're fresh, not after a sleepless night finishing a term paper. And they're practicing. Maybe they're bored at home? Waves of positive reinforcement from parents can't hurt. My mom, during quarantine, like every morning, she's been asking me to like play for like 30 minutes and she like drinks coffee while I'm playing. And like after every song, she like starts to clap. There's a master apprentice tradition to the centuries-old teaching of classical music. It's intimate and detail-oriented and incorporates the ineffable power of the classical canon. Given the surreal times, we explore repertoire outside that canon. It's like a class in Shakespeare suddenly reading pulp fiction. Whenever possible, we find parallels to the strange moment we're living in. It needs to be giddy and exuberant, like the lockdown has just ended and we can finally go outside. Okay. Again? Online lessons have forced us to see and hear from a new perspective. That's important for artists, for all of us, actually. We adjust and adapt because, as John Lennon and Paul McCartney remind us, life goes on. Judith Hogan is a professional harpist and teacher in Massachusetts. And that's our show this week. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski. Daniela Luna is our intern. All the music you hear on Next is by musicians in New England. If you want to know who you heard today, visit our show page at nextnewengland.org. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WCAI, WGBH, WSHU, and the Public's Radio.